welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. It's episode 128 and my guest this week is Rachel Walker-Mason who is a multi-award winning songwriter, musical director, vocal coach and mental health campaigner and she was once described by Prince Harry as an inspiration for her mentoring and charity work and Rachel experienced postnatal depression after both her pregnancies and in this episode we chat about that diagnosis and what life was like for her at that time. We talk about her first experience of postnatal depression and how she got through it. But then we also talk about her second pregnancy. And I thought that was a really interesting part of the conversation and an important part because after experiencing PND once, she then had to make the decision whether to, I suppose, risk it again, right, with a second pregnancy. And Rachel did get sick the second time round. Both experiences are very different and it was wonderful to be able to explore the differences in both. But as part of her recovery, Rachel joined support group. And she found a lot of comfort in the experiences of others. And she collected these stories and along with her own story, she published them in the best-selling book, Not the Only One. And we talk about those support groups. We talk about the power of relatability and shared experience and a lot of the common themes that come up on this podcast time and time again. We talk a lot about parenting and the pressure to be a good parent and the pressure to parent in a certain way and how that can get in the way of people asking for help with their mental health because they don't want to be seen as a terrible parent. We also talk about songwriting and the workshop she does with people who have experienced PND. We talk about her creative process and how it's affected by depression. And we talk about mental health in the music industry, uh, particularly the sort of 90s grunge era. Both Rachel and I are big fans of that era of music, so we talk about that a lot. I love chatting to Rachel. You know, it's great to kind of do some honest parenting chat. It's always good when you can kind of speak openly with someone about how, how it's great to be a parent, but also it's not great to be a parent, right? And I loved Rachel's honesty about that. It's one of those episodes where I felt like I was talking to an old friend, to be honest. We got on really, really well. She's absolutely lovely and I'm really looking forward to you hearing our conversation the links to everything Rachel does is in the episode notes her workshops are amazing the book's amazing her songs are amazing go and check it all out and if you want to get hold of me all my stuff is in there too one thing that we don't talk about in this episode that I wanted to and we didn't quite get around to it was the fact that Rachel is an ambassador for My Black Dog they're a charity that you might have heard me mention before but they're a text-based mental health charity it's run by volunteers and everyone who volunteers there has lived experience so their tagline is speak to someone who gets it so if you're struggling or if you know someone who's struggling they just need to reach out by text and speak to someone that way when it's just too hard to pick up the phone my black dog is there for you along with rachel they've got some incredible ambassadors people like nick hogben from the mouth of manliness podcast people like gail porter Susie weaver from so happy in town all three of those have been on i've also recorded an episode with nikki clark who founded my black dog and we chat about where the idea came from and how she set it up and all that wonderful stuff so all of those are available now in the back catalogue and they're all great episodes so go and listen to them too but listen to this one first and if you've got two minutes to leave a review i'd really appreciate it this is episode 128 of the proper mental podcast with rachel walker mason thank you very much for listening enjoy
So here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest this week is Rachel Walker-Mason. How are you, mate? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thank you, mate. I'm good. It's really cool to meet you. And um, yeah, I really appreciate you jumping on today. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. I love a podcast. Love to chat about things. (laughs) That's it, man. It's good to chat, right? That's a true, it's a true statement. Yeah, it's a true true thing. Yeah. Um, I thought a really cool place for us to jump in today, Rachel, would be with with music, really. And um I I was really interested in like the sort of the sort of stuff you were listening to or that was around you when you grew up, you know, from your childhood that I'm gonna guess kind of set off this this passion and this love for music. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um I listened to loads of different things um, as a child, but I loved um, things like Paul Simon. The Graceland album was a favourite of our family. So we always had that on in the car. Um, I love Kate Bush, um, loads of different things. And I was always really interested in um, the the lyrics. I, I, was, I always kind of focused on the lyrics and what they were talking about and what, what the message of the song was. Um, and, and my parents used to um, do a thing where they play me instrumental like albatross or something by Fleetwood Mac and my mum would say what do you imagine when you hear this um which was a really good thing to do because I I do that now a lot in my songwriting classes (laughs) so mum taught me to do that when I was about three um and I also have a condition called synesthesia um which means I see colors when I hear music and um I I I've had that since at birth pretty much um so I used to listen to music as a child and and see different colors and I thought everybody did until I realised that they didn't. And it was <laughs> it was just me. And then as I've grown up, I've realised more people do have it and a lot of a lot of musicians have it. So when we hear music, it's um it's like a, a full, full body experience almost, all the senses, which is pretty cool. Yeah. So that was happening uh, like a, from a young age, Rachel. Yeah, listening to Graceland and, and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. You, can, you can see the colours. Yeah. See. Yeah, that's yeah. incredible. Has Pharrell got that? Have I read that somewhere? Yes, yes, Pharrell has got it. Yeah, and Peter Gabriel, I think, Tori Amos, um, Charlie XCX, there's quite a few. But yeah, definitely Pharrell Williams. I've got, I read his book because I was like, oh, I really want to hear about how he um, sees it because we all see it as different colours. It's funny because I thought, oh, maybe every, everyone with synesthesia sees like something that's in the key of F major might all see it as yellow, but we don't. We all see it as completely different things. It's almost like our own colour wheel. Um, that works for us but it's funny yeah. you just see it and it's and it's there it's <laughs> wow is it is the color um is it linked to anything like you know sometimes we talk about emotions in colors and stuff like that is it linked to the feeling of the song at all or is it just a just an associated color it can be yeah sometimes it's linked to the to the feeling sometimes you feel um as the song goes into the chorus or another verse or something, the colour palette can change um, if the song does something different or sometimes if the vocal lifts into a higher higher register or something, it, it can feel different. So I always <laughs> I say to my parents when I was about three or four, in Wuthering Heights, the Kate Bush song, um, in the verse it's dark green and then it goes into gold, you know, when she sings the higher bit in the chorus. And they'd sort of look blankly at me and say, it's a, it's a song, it's not a colour. And that's when I realised perhaps my brain was a bit weird and I saw things other people didn't see. Um, but other people who hear that song and have synesthesia will see something completely different, which wow. um, which is, is fun. It's weird. It makes lighting plans good for when, when I do gigs and things. If I get a good light, you know, good lighting team, I'm able to say, oh, this song is uh, this one's a blue light and this one's a yellow and this one's. So that's quite fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, I really love what you said there as well about your mum asking you to what you imagine when you hear the song, you know, because I like 
you know, we're going to get to the mental health stuff in a bit, but so much about things that really affect our mental health is we kind of sometimes have a, a inability to explain what we are feeling or what we're experiencing. Yeah. And that can make it so hard, right. To, to understand it and to get help and everything that comes with that. And mm-hmm. it's like really important. I think that we practice that as adults, but learn it as kids. Right. And the idea of using something like music, which often music makes us feel stuff. We don't always know what the stuff is, right? That's, yes. the, that's one of the beautiful things about it. Um, yeah. To say to, to say to like young people, like, what does this make you think of? That's like, that's a really wonderful tool. I think that sounds, I mean, fun for a start, but. Yeah. It gives you a whole kind of vocabulary. Like the, my, my children's school, my, uh, my daughter's in year one and they do this thing with, with different colors where it's different feelings. So if, if it's, you can say, um, if you can't explain how you're feeling, you can just say um, it's the green color and green is calm. Blue is feeling very sad. Red is angry. It's like the obvious kind of things. Um, yellow is happy. Um, so if you can't explain how you're feeling, but you just say it's I'm in the blue, I'm in the blue color. Um, the teacher can, can then talk to them about what's happening, but just identifying that it's that, that color is how they're, how they're feeling they're in that spectrum of of sadness um and blue um can really help so it's it's kind of using anything to, to help us describe what we're going through and and get help as you said so i think we can yeah using anything colors music it's yeah. amazing just get it started right that's the hard exactly. bit that's the hard bit sometimes we we think we don't know how to talk about it but what we really don't know is how to start talking about it and once we start yes. then you know you can't switch the tap off sometimes but yeah just having everyone needs a different in to the conversation i think absolutely yeah. absolutely yeah yeah Those, um so yeah th- things like great i was nodding my head off when you said graceland that was our holiday in the car <laughs> <laughs> album. Oh, yeah it's such a good uh and it's not the first time i've talked to a, a music guest about that i've had um samuel jack on and that was one of his his oh, growing cool. up albums as well but um yeah so what what was it then that kind of from music that made you start thinking i'm gonna have a go at you know making my own <laughs> it was almost never a choice it was just a thing that I was going to do. Like I, I started writing songs in my head from, from very young um, and would just come out with lyrics and tunes. And that's kind of like how I processed the world was, was that some people do coloring in, some people describe things, but it was always in song. Um, I started playing the guitar when I was quite little and piano and would just sit and write little tunes. Um, and I think from that, from then, from very early, it was quite obvious I was going to, unless something catastrophic happened or I became really good at science or something and became a doctor, it was like I was going to be a musician. And that was that. was that. And my parents, luckily, didn't stop me. <laughs> There's parents who say, no, that's a terribly unreliable um, career. Don't do that. Go and do something proper. Um, but they never said that. They were so supportive. Um, I'm always so grateful to my mum and dad for, for that level of you know, driving me to endless piano lessons and orchestra and guitar things and gigs and court concerts and all sorts of stuff they were always so supportive um and then yeah I went off and did my degree in music and they didn't stop me doing that either they were like yeah you you go and do music <laughs> oh, <laughs> which mate. Was amazing. yeah that's wicked it makes a difference doesn't it it makes a Massively. makes a difference just uh just being able to have a have a go I think and to have someone mm-hmm. make you feel like you can have a go you know, like, well, I'll just have a go and see, see how it goes. That's important, isn't it? 
Absolutely. And my parents always encouraged because I, I started teaching piano when I was about 16. Um, and we had a piano in our in our house. So I was still doing my my A-levels then. And mum and dad would let my piano students come to the house and I teach them. And that's kind of how I <laughs> how I made my kind of cash as a teenager to be able to go out plumbing and things. Um, and they were always really supportive of that. And my dad, one of my dad's favorite expressions is even Mozart's taught. Um, so even amazing composers still taught singing lessons and piano lessons and things for the kind of for the cash because you need to you know you can't live symphony to symphony I guess as Mozart <laughs> um, so yeah while well, I was you know doing writing and lots of other projects teaching has um, you know it's still within the music realm and you're supporting other people going into the industry which I love um, so I've been teaching for, for 18 years now I think and it's it's wonderful because I get to support the other side of it of helping people come through the industry um and see them now on the west end stage or in recording studios working with different people all over the world and it's i'm so proud of them and it's such a lovely part nice thing to be part of their journey and support them in that yeah. way so yeah it's nice having that part of the music world as part of my career as well it's um it's kept me going financially as well <laughs> yeah i mean yeah <laughs> multiple revenue streams right that's the key to being uh to being self-employed but if you can find a way to do that that's fulfilling and uh, yeah. you know and you get to do something like that's meaningful to you and that you enjoy as well then that's the real that's the real key isn't it mate yeah absolutely and yeah. um, i know that like a lot of your with regards to like the mental health um campaigning and awareness and stuff you do mm-hmm. is is a lot around um postnatal depression and, and that type of life but was with your own experience did you have any experience um with mental ill health before um pregnancy is it something that featured in your life before that yes it did um I'd struggle I think I think I'd possibly always struggled with my mental health um and I used to say this thing to myself as a little girl when I felt I felt kind of something wrong inside something that was upsetting me and I didn't know what it was and I think am I hungry am I thirsty am I tired I'm like, it's not any of those things. And I couldn't work out what it was. And I think it was me struggling with emotions and things. Um, and I think I'd possibly always struggle with that. But then it wasn't till I was um, in my 20s, really, that I had a really bad bout of depression and, and went to the doctor and they put me on um, on antidepressants, which helped kind of level me out a bit. Um, but that was, yeah, that was a rough time. It was That was hard. And although I didn't, you know, there was just so much stigma around it. So I just didn't tell anyone. Um, but then I found out later on that a lot of my friends were also on, on antidepressants. It's just that nobody t- says anything. So we all think we're alone. Um, and then when I had, uh, when I was pregnant with, with our, our first child, Layla, um, I remember very clearly in, in a midwife appointment when I was only mm, six weeks, seven weeks pregnant, she said, oh, on your medical notes, it says that you've had depression before. And then she said, um, which puts you at a higher risk of having postnatal depression um, or antenatal depression, which you can have like while you're pregnant. And I just remember thinking, because I'm 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 quite a strong person in that if I'm determined to do something, I'll do it. And I remember to her saying, you know, basically just watch out for the signs. And I just thought, I'm not gonna have that. I won't let myself have postnatal depression. And I just made made my mind up that I could 
overpower it with with positive thought. And then, of course, that didn't work because it's completely um, chemicals and you're in a big soup of emotions and stuff after you've given birth anyway. And um, and I was really, really ill um, after Layla was born and didn't tell anybody because I was so ashamed. And I thought I can I can beat this on my own. I, I don't need help. Um, it's only having a baby. I mean, you know, I just thought it's you know people do this all the time. Why am I having such a hard time with it emotionally? Um, and didn't didn't tell anyone at all. Even my husband. I just kept it all inside. Um, and and then that you know that that kept playing back in my mind about the midwife saying because you've had depression before, you're more likely to have it after you've had a baby. And feeling almost like I'd let my daughter down as well, let all of us down, like because I already had mental health problems, like, oh, now I've ruined ruined the first bit of her life and I'm a terrible mom and stuff. And it's it was awful. It was really lonely because I but that was because I wouldn't let myself talk about it. I felt so ashamed of of all of that. And there was nothing to be ashamed of, as I've learnt, you know, when I finally went to get some help, I realized that it, there is nothing to be ashamed of. Um, but yeah, it's, it was scary. It was scary. And I think yeah. a lot of people don't realize that, that not, it doesn't necessarily follow that you'll have postnatal depression if you've had depression before, but the, your, it's just, it's a higher percentage is a, is a likelihood is greater and, um, it shouldn't be anything to be ashamed of, but, it, but we do cause we're human. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. Exactly, isn't it? That's it. And I, I think like particularly around pregnancy and childbirth and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And this goes for like both both parents, right? Is mm-hmm. there's so many if you were to Google um, you know, am I depressed, which is something that tends to, you know, turn up in Google searches a lot, right? Yeah. A, a lot of the signs and symptoms that you would get told in that list are also things that will happen when you've had a baby. Exactly. You know? So it's like, oh, maybe your sleep gets disrupted. It's like, I don't know if it's disrupted because <laughs> I'm not having any to be disrupted. Exactly. Right? So I can tick that <laughs> box. You know, you might feel more emotional and cry more. And well, yes, I'm doing that You're anyway. Like, it's yeah, it's hard to know. Yeah. <laughs> what is just being a human who has just brought a child into the world and what is being mentally ill? It's 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 just a yeah. mixing pot, isn't it, around that time? It really is. And um, I think there's I think it's particularly what I learned from midwives um, who was so lovely and so supportive was particularly women in their thirties are much more reluctant to ask for help. Um, Mums who are younger are more likely to go um, to say, Oh, actually I think I'm struggling a bit. Um, But women in their thirties, particularly if you've been a businesswoman and been professional and doing all these things, you were used to holding it together and just bossing on through it. Um, And then you feel like, you knew the kind of mum you were going to be and then you're disappointed that you're not that mum because you're crying um and can't sleep and um and it's it's more likely to happen to women who are a little bit older just because we have a, a clearer and possibly unrealistic idea of how we're going to be as a as a mum yeah I mean that makes sense to me, right? And yeah. you know, like you're, you're you're thinking like, oh, that's going to happen to me. I'm going to I'm going to sort this out. Well, that's like, you know, that's a very very common approach. It was certainly my approach. You know, when my mental health started to mm-hmm. to collapse, um, it's also like that. That's the hardest thing. Like the harder you try and muscle out muscle it, the harder yeah. it fights back. Right? You get on it. That's it's it really is. You have to kind of accept things and let it almost wash over you. Right? It, it's such yeah. a it's such a hard 
you only find that out the hard way, I think is what I'm trying to say. You are absolutely right. And it's um, the only point when it started to get better is when I finally just said, I'm really struggling. And it, it was the hardest thing to say. But then my husband was like, I knew you were. You, I just couldn't say that to you because it would have pushed you further away. Um, so people knew anyway, but they couldn't help because I wouldn't let them. So and I think that's that happens to people a lot because we do feel like we can just push through it on our own. Yeah. Like you said, muscle through it. Like that's how a lot of us, particularly for self-employed, there's no fallback. You have to do the work. Otherwise, you haven't got time to be depressed. You have to just do it anyway. Um, so it's it's really hard admitting you might need some support. Yeah. Really. And especially when you're worried that it might reflect on your ability to be a parent, right? So exactly. Like something I say all the time now when I talk about my own experience, I was I was worried people would take my kids off me. I didn't say anything because I was yeah. worried they would say you are not fit to be a dad, you know? Yeah. And the irony is the hiding it and the trying to wrestle with it, they were the bits that were making me a not very good dad, you know? Like it was it it was it was the asking for help and the getting better that allowed the dad skills to start to flourish, you know, but um, we're, we're so worried, aren't we, that people will say something about the parenting that it, it that's another barrier to asking to help. I think. You're absolutely right. I was terrified um, of saying that I was, that I was struggling or struggling to breastfeed and that makes you feel really like you're, you're awful and can't do it and you shouldn't be a mum. And then I couldn't, there were other things I just really struggled with. And then I started having odd kind of hallucination things which were really scary and I thought that was normal but actually that's kind of psychosis and I probably should have been sectioned um when I look now there was a tv program that um and I've met some of the mums that were on it since since then it was um this thing about um motherhood and, and mental health and some of the mums were sectioned um which was the right thing for them because they were really struggling with their with with psychosis um and um, Adele's best friend, actually, who I I vaguely know, she's written this book and it's amazing. Um, Adele noticed it in her. She was like, "There's something not right." After her friend had given birth, and she did actually have have um, postnatal psychosis, which is a very scary and you know can end very badly. Things can end, you know, in in deaths um, from it. So the, the sooner it's picked up, the better. But it's yeah, it's a very scary place to be. Your mind is a very scary place when you when you trap yourself in with like, well, I can't tell anyone because I'll take my kids away and I can't I can't ask for help because they'll think I'm a terrible person. And and I should just be, you know, um, just bossing it, just going down the road with my pram and my beautiful baby and like, going, yeah, life's amazing. And that's what people want from you. And particularly because I was doing a, I was shooting a TV show at the time and things and everyone was like, Oh my gosh, you're so amazing. Your baby's like two months old and you're shooting a TV show. And I was like, yeah, because that's what they want to hear. They want to hear that you're, you're the mum that's, that that's totally got it all together. So therefore other mums can, <laughs> I was like, just, I was not, I had, did not have it all together at all. It was, um, it was a very weird kind of out of body experience, still pretending to be a normal person, but inside I was like totally just just raw nerves it was it was scary yeah it sounds awful it's um the the amount of like sort of i don't i don't like the word resilience right it has strange mm -hmm. connotations but the amount of resilience that we do show as humans is incredible what what yeah. people can get through when they're living with mental ill health and caring for a baby and doing their job and all of that at once and i, I kind of look back at my experience sometimes and think like 
bloody hell, mate. Like, yeah. <laughs> of course you were ill. Like, you know, looking back yeah, now, look it makes it. so much sense. But in that, in that exactly. moment, it's just, it's on and through, isn't it? It's like, I've got to, I've got to sort this shit out. Exactly. Because there's no option. You can't just stop and go, well, I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm not going to look after this baby. I'm not going to, going to, you know, get up each day. Like you just have to, because that's just life. Um, but yeah, I, I look back and think, wow, that was, that was an odd time. Yeah. No one's like, you said like, no wonder I was struggling. Then we moved house at that point as well. We're trying to sell the house. And it was like, oh God, it was just too, like all, you know, there's like a list of stressful things that can happen in your life that can trigger things. And like four of those things happened in one go. And we were like, oh yeah, I can see why that was, was, um, was bad. Yeah. I can see why. <laughs> Look back. Yeah. Oh, but hindsight's a wonderful thing, right? It <laughs> yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> After you um spoke to your your husband, mate, and you reached out, how did things start to change for you? How did things start to um to get better? Just, just the unburdening of saying the words felt like it's like you think you said that we don't know how to start talking about it rather than we don't have to talk about it. Just the saying of the first few words, and you can and, and I just remember just just being able to kind of exhale deeply for the first time in ages. And, um, and then I went, went to the doctor and they, um, and they referred me for some counselling and the NHS can't offer a lot because there isn't any, so I had like one counselling session. It was really short. Um, but the lady was lovely and, and referred me to some um, mental health groups like pandas who were amazing and um, mothers for mothers. And there's lots of quite a few in Bristol, which is near where I am. Um, who were just incredible and so helpful and there's no shame around it and and you can just say even the worst things that you think about yourself or your child when you're in that that bit you can say that to those people because they understand they're not going to judge you um whereas just saying it to somebody else they might kind of recoil in horror and think wow maybe you should be in prison (laughs) you know (laughs) so the safety of of people understanding was and, and not being alone um and then I started, um, I started because I all that during that time I was writing lyrics down of things that that's how I kind of process. I was writing things down um, about how I felt. And then I thought, if anyone finds them, I can just pretend there's lyrics for a song about something else. I don't have to admit what's wrong. Um, and I started chatting to people online um, on Instagram and Twitter and things who were parents, uh, mums and dads, who were very open about their mental health struggles. Um, and they were just the most incredible people and they were so honest and, and I thought oh my gosh these are my people this is exactly how I felt and the fact they were blogging about it just it was just for them to have the courage to blog about it and the fact that they were helping other people so much was just amazing um, and so I started to kind of contact them um, and they were just so so nice and we'd sort of chat online and you know, message back and forth about about things um, which which then led to me writing a book um, about it because I realised that during that time, if there was a book I could have read with people's kind of almost like case studies of like real people going through, mums and dads going through this and coming out the other side, I would have realised it wasn't just me. I wasn't the only one. And so because I've met all these people online through my, you know, not one who's talked to my family, but quietly talking online to these people, um, we, I, I asked permission for their stories to be in this book. So they all wrote their stories and it's in a book that people can read. And then they know so it's called not the only one, cause it makes you feel like it's not just you, you're not the only one. Um, 
and it's it was it was from that it was it was those incredible people um yeah. that that really really helped made me feel like I wasn't alone yeah I mean just that right knowing you're not the only one and being exactly. able I was thinking with parenting Rachel being able to speak like really really openly you know and you know you know I love my kids I don't always like them you know yes <laughs> And and sometimes I get things wrong and sometimes I I say something I shouldn't or react in a way. And afterwards I think about it. I think, do you know what? That was not a good dad move, but then also saying, do you know what? Sometimes that was that, that was a valid dad move. You know, I'm not proud of either of us in this situation, but it needed to be said, you know, and all these like true natural parenting things, being able to sit around with people and say, I don't always get it right. I'm not perfect. I'm doing my best though. And that's kind of the most important thing. That's huge, isn't it? It is having those people who are your kind of safety group. Um, like there's mums that I've met at school, you know, my kids going there that I, I don't know what I do without them. They were literally at my house until about 10 minutes before this call. <laughs> we were like planning stuff for the PTA. Um, but they're the mums that I can just say anything to and they can say anything to me and we wouldn't recoil in horror and go, oh my God, your children should be taken away. We just go, yeah, I, I get you when your kid's smeared their poo all over the wall and you think maybe i'll maybe i'll put you on ebay to somebody else to have you <laughs> yeah. really that, but like you know when you have those days you're like great great dirty protests yeah like, that, that's <laughs> it yeah i remember really really early on when i brought my son down so in uh, my son was born in uh, 2016 and that for me that's when my kind of mental health like exploded and um i remember like i remember holding him and thinking like he's here now i can't give him back you know, I can't give him away. We've talked, I've put it on Facebook. Like people know I've got him like, you know, like yeah. that, you know, what, whatever I do, I'm the bad person in this situation. Like, how am I, how am I going to do it? And it's that, that feeling, isn't it? But yeah, having just someone say, and I think, I mean, you know, it keeps coming up today, this whole thing of starting conversations, but to have it all in a book, to have those stories in a book, even if someone is struggling to start that conversation, then you can say like, you don't need to start that conversation today why don't you read this, you know, and then you can get the words from other people. You can borrow other people's words, can't you? Yeah. And say, and point to him, be like, I felt like this, or this happened or, um, and then see it, that it can turn out all right. And, um, <clears throat> other amazing things can, can come for it, come from it. And it's, it's, yeah, there's a lot of people I met through that who have done really positive things because that's happened to them and they wouldn't be the person they are now had they not struggled with their mental health then. And it's kind of doing, you know, going through something horrible, but then turning it into something beautiful is the best possible thing that can come out of it. And it's like you with this podcast, this helps loads of people that they can listen and go, oh, I felt like this. This is just a normal, two relatively normal people chatting. And um, people might go, oh, I felt like that. That's, you know, and it, if turning it, turning it into something good then that can help others I think that's a, a really that's a gift that we're that we give them yeah I hope so yeah thank you for saying that mate I really appreciate it and yeah that's kind of I have to look back at my experience and think oh, would I change it I think that with therapy right so I started therapy because I was in crisis and that got me out of crisis but then underneath that you still get all the therapy gains right so when you're not in if you're not in when you're not in crisis anymore then you've still learned all this other stuff about yourself you know and I kind of think it's a shame crisis took me to therapy because therapy has made me I'm a better husband I'm a better dad I'm better at my job do you know what I mean so yeah Absolutely. by the horrible thing happening good things come too you learn a lot about yourself through through mental ill health right 
definitely and 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 also like how to look for signs like occasionally because I'm on I'm on medication now I'm on quite strong medication but it just levels me out and I'm totally fine I'm a, I'm quite lucky that um that um antidepressants work really well for me because I make enough serotonin for it to hang on to so I'm like I'm pretty good it's rare that it's much rarer now that I have really down days but I can tell when it's starting when you start to you think oh I'm starting to not feel right and you start to head downwards so you can so I've learned ways to stop myself getting all the way to the bottom again because I'm much more aware of it so it's knowing those triggers knowing um like with therapy like you know what sets you off and so my husband kind of notices and he's like and so I know he often just he's often like you're probably hungry so he brings me some toast and a cup of tea and like cuddles me into a blanket and stuff and that just that can really help just that sensory kind of thing can just stop me starting down that that slope um and and it it makes a really big difference that I'm I'm not on quite so much of a huge roller coaster anymore it's much more level with a few dips um and dips is part of life right you're gonna there's gonna be dips um and yeah being able to see him coming to see him coming that's really really important and often i found after a bad patch if i then analyze the run-up to the bad patch it's like yeah. oh it makes sense i didn't see it at the time but it makes sense and you go like oh you know my daughter was up like four times in the night that week and you know i booked too much stuff at work and you know you put all these little things together and you start to kind of see see why you know and it, it makes it easier for next time doesn't it absolutely yeah you're so right i think the more we learn about ourselves and what we can handle and what's a little bit too much for us and what's going to completely push us over the edge is really, is really useful. Um, it took me a long time to realize that I used to just overload myself with stuff, stop myself before I had kids. Um, it's like, well, <laughs> even since kids actually a bit, I would overload myself with work and things because I wanted to just keep being busy. I wouldn't have to think about being sad or there being anything wrong with me. Um, and the more I stepped back from that and actually said, actually, no, I think I need to have time to like process feelings and deal with things, particularly as a songwriter. That's what we have to do. We write about the feelings. So if I'm yeah. not deep, there's nothing to write about. Um, so it's, that was a hard lesson to kind of take a step back sometimes and not com- just cram my diary full of, full of stuff, full of work. Um, it's actually having time for your mental health, like making that time before it all starts to go wrong will probably prevent it all going wrong or at least ease it. So you're, you're predicting that it's going to, you know, this is going to be a rough week because such and such has happened or I could go to a funeral or, um, you know, it's parents evening or something, you know, you schedule these things in. Yeah. Do you find like, um, you know, if you are not in a, in the great place or in the past when you were in really not good places, how did that affect your, creativity you know did you were you able to like lean into the music or did you find yourself pulling away from it because people tend to have a different response to their their levels of creativity right yeah I was sometimes I was able to lean into it and I was able to to kind of write but in other ways I was really trapped and I almost lost my synesthesia a bit as well like I, I just didn't really see colors it was like it was like the kind of top level of my emotions was just completely dampened it was really odd, like a whole chunk of being cut off that I couldn't access. And I think as I started to process things a bit more, I was able to to properly write about it and actually deal with with things and I, and became a much better 
writer and um because I was I was allowing myself to tap into it but yeah to begin with I I I was just doing other kinds of work I was doing lots of teaching and things so I don't really have to think about <laughs> my emotions it's just you know whatever the student needs um but yeah writing was was hard for a bit it was quite hard until I started to process because um, you can't be cut off from your emotions and try and write a song it's uh doesn't really doesn't work well <laughs> as yeah. I discovered yeah it's kind of it's something I always ask people who, who create in any way I'm, mm. like, I was really interested if like whether I've, I've asked a lot of people this question, right? And I still haven't quite found the, the wording for it. So you're going to have to bear with me a bit here, Rachel. But <laughs> it's like, does your ability to create and your susceptibility to mental health, are they intertwined? So to put things out there into the world, you kind of have to be able to tune into this space. Mm. Does that, could that make it more susceptible? Does that mean, because you have to feel, but then do you feel too much because you have to feel for your job, if that makes any sense at all? That's a really good question. I think... Yeah, I think that's why people get so upset about, you know, when artists put something out and people just go, oh, stupid. And you're like, oh, I put my heart into that. Oh, you know, it's, um, yeah, we, we're quite vulnerable creative people because we are giving something of ourselves into, into something. So it's quite, then it's when people are really dismissive of it or mean about it, it can make you feel really down. Um, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, that's that is a really good question. I think if anyone figures out how to not be upset about things, <laughs> then they should write a book about it. Um, because yeah, like it's really hard not to take it personally. Like I, I know a lot of professional dancers and artists and musicians, all these kind of people, and they put their heart and soul into something, and then if it's if people just don't don't come to the event or don't feel the way they hope people would feel about it it can be really hard on your mental health to make you feel like oh, I just don't want to do it anymore um yeah, yeah definitely that's... yeah it's um yeah it's a strange one it's like I don't know I think intellectually as well you know that there are a million and one different reasons why people might not have turned up or connected <laughs> with it in some way intellectually you know <laughs> that but it that, like it doesn't help emotionally does it it's still it's still Thank easy you. to kind of blame your blame yourself yeah it's a tricky um tricky space yeah very tricky space um so you feeling a bit better and the book comes out and you're doing really well but you've got two kids Rachel right yeah yeah so so how how do we how does it work for you going into well first of all when you were um pregnant again was it a worry that you were gonna go go back to that place a hundred percent it was um so Layla was nine months when we talked about having another child because we always knew we wanted to. My husband's one of five, and I was like, that's not happening. So <laughs> you can put that thought right out of your head. There's not enough antidepressants in the world to, uh, no. <laughs> to get, you, get you through five kids. Exactly. His parents were much younger when they started having kids as well. I was already like 37 by the time I had Layla. So I was like, yeah, this is not, you know, no. Um, I'll be like 50 by the time I'm still giving birth, and nobody wants that. Um, and so we, so Layla was nine months old and we talked about, I was feeling better. And I said, I think I could possibly deal with being pregnant again. Um, and we said, okay, what's the smallest gap we could deal with? And I said, well, I could probably deal with them being 18 months apart. And then we immediately got pregnant and it was like, right. Okay. So <laughs> they are 18 months apart to the day. Wow, to the day. Yeah. To the day. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> 
yeah so it's um so Layla, <laughs> Layla being it's weird I look back at photographs of me with Elias the second child and Layla is so little she comes in to meet him in hospital and she's still really little and like oh my gosh it's it's weird like she was still kind of a baby and so I was two of them in nappies which was excellent um and it was both the children had quite different quite complicated births um and so that doesn't really help because you're also really tired because you haven't slept for like three days because you're just laboring um and yeah when when Elias I was I did have a bit of antenatal depression while Elias while I was pregnant with Elias because I think I was just really worried about it coming back because I thought it's probably going to like I know what this feels like and it was actually worse the second time significantly worse but I asked for help straight away so I felt worse um in a much scarier place but was able to reach out straight away because it wasn't a secret then that I'd had postnatal depression <laughs> he wouldn't be like what um so I said to my husband straight away like I'm really struggling and um and it, it and my family were live quite near and were really helpful and really supportive and and I went to the doctors very quickly and they put me on antidepressants and, and things like that so it there was a like that safety net was there immediately because I let it be there was a safety net last plot the, the time before but I just didn't want it didn't want to use it but this time I did. And I think I don't know quite how we would have come out of it if I'd tried to deny it again. I don't think it would have ended brilliantly. Um, but yeah, so I felt I got through it quicker, like because I was able to talk about it. I was able to actually say, I'm feeling really sad about this. This, this, this is how I'm feeling. Um, just having the words, having to be able to describe it because I didn't have to start the conversation again, use that hard like oh you know starting the conversation I didn't have to do that this time um and the support was amazing um and the amount of people who would message me like total strangers who would message and and say oh my gosh I felt like this or my mum had this or my grandma and obviously back you know when the 50s or whatever they just thought you were actually mental and would take your child away and put you in a you know a weird nursing home thing and um or you get absolutely no help at all and they just say oh we're just feeling a bit blue and you're like this isn't the baby blues this is significantly more um but yeah it it was scary to have a second child because I pretty I, I kind of knew it would come back and it did yeah there is that worry isn't there yeah I've, we've got um I've got two children similar gap mine are 19 months so that whole thing about bringing a, a baby into me a baby I really yeah. you know about that you look at photos and go what were we thinking man that was just <laughs> like it was just poor poor kid he didn't know what didn't know you know we turned his life upside down by bringing his sister home but um yeah and again you know that that just leads to more worry and more fuss and it and it just feeds it but yeah this I I suppose someone said to me the other day that when it comes to like worrying about being poorly again, that you can't unlearn what you've learned. So, yeah. so, you know, so once you know that you can ask for help, you know that you can, like, you're not going to find yourself. You might get poorly again, but you're not going to find your, the same thing isn't going to, you're not going to have the same result because you've, you've got that that's baked into you now, isn't it? To be able to, um, to get help. And that's, it's really, really comforting. But yeah, I went off on the tangent then. But yeah, me and my wife, we kind of talked. We we did talk about having a, a third baby. And she said to me, she said, I'm I'm not 100% sure your mental health would take it. You know, and it was like, that's, it, 
you know, it's a factor, isn't it? You have to think about these things when you talk about, um, you know, going through the same things again. It's, it becomes part of part of life that has to be taken into consideration, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. And it's like there's some people I know who've got loads of kids and they had a great time being pregnant. They love it. And I'm like, oh, I wish <laughs> I wish I was that person. but I'm just not. And I think. Yeah, we talked about that. we never really wanted a third child. Um, we were pretty happy with two. And you've got, you know, one parent on a, sh- you know, per child when you're trying to cross a road, etc. It's just easier. It's better maths. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I don't want a massive great car with like 15 seats, you know, that kind of thing. I don't want to do with that. Um, but I said to my husband, I was like, I just don't, I don't think my body, yeah, I don't think my brain would would cope with it because I think it's going to happen again. But then part of me thought I'd really love to have a baby and just feel happy. And all I remember being, you know, with the children being very little is, is that looking at their little beautiful faces and feeding them and things, but having this desperate sadness inside me and the two are just bound together. It's very hard to separate, to separate that image from that feeling. Um, so it's quite nice when I hold somebody else's baby now and I'm like, oh, I can hold a baby and not feel sad. It's quite odd. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I think I've had to just move past that now and think because the risk is too high to have another child just to hope that it yeah. goes well and I better because then it, it won't and then I'll be like, oh god, it's happened again. Yeah, before you know it, you got five. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, but uh, oh mate, yeah, I've never really thought about that, but that's true. Yeah, so much. Um, and I think it's hard to like. F- like sometimes in amongst the bad times, there's also some good times, and it's really, really do mm-hmm. we like to look back and really focus on the, on the bad. And sometimes when I tell my story, my wife will point out to me and she'll say, "Yes, all of those things happened, and all of them were awful." But in between that, you know, we had a really nice holiday, and we went and did this, and you know, there's, you know, there is, there is some goodness in there as well, and it's all kind of like mixed together, and it, yeah, it all just becomes a bit of a mess, doesn't it? After a while, the memory. It does, but it's so nice to have someone point out things that you might have forgotten because you're just remembering the sad things and my husband like your wife is really good at pointing out oh but we did this and and we managed this and the kids are fairly well adjusted they're not you know setting fires places and you know (laughs) punching people in the face (laughs) like so far anyway um my you know that they're okay they're four and five now and they're they're like they seem fairly normal so that (laughs) feels like a win um but yeah like finding those remembering those moments where it actually was you know, there were nice things is, is really important. Yeah. And then going through it and coming to understand this stuff, like for me anyway, I think it made me into the parent that I needed to be. I think that me, <clears throat> excuse me, who became a parent wasn't prepared for it and didn't have the tools. And I kind of had to, I had to break and put myself back together to get the tools that would then help me be a, a better dad, you know? So you can, you kind uh-huh. of, you know, I think sometimes the, we worry about how our experience is going to affect our children in a negative way, but I think it can also really affect them in a, in a positive as way, a positive way as well. I think. That's a really, that's a really good way of putting it. Because <laughs> I think, I always think there's no blueprint for it. You can read all the books you want about parenting, but when there's a crying baby in your arms and you're like, I don't know what I'm doing. No book is going to you know turn up in the night and, and help you the book will just sit there on your bedside table unread probably and it's and there there is no blueprint and for that particular child kids turn up without a manual which is very unhelpful I'm like you're supposed to have you know kids are meant to be born in this particular way and it doesn't happen and you're like well 
child didn't read the manual clearly coming into this world. There's no manual to raise them, which again is, you know, <laughs> a shame. Yeah. Uh, I remember bringing Reese home and like in, he was asleep in the car seat and we kind of like put him on the rug and we just kind of looked at each other and looked at him. And I was like, you know, <laughs> the car I brought him home into, I had to do a test, right? And they've just given me a person to bring home. Is, 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 did he not come with a DVD or, you know, like what happens now? What what do I do? It's like, it's a big, yeah. it's a big deal. Eh? It's a big, it, uh, it, big deal. Um, exactly that. And like, you <laughs> take the baby in the little car seat and they're like, bye. And you think, you know we're idiots right you know you know we're literally idiots and we and and yeah we I don't know quite how you expect us to raise this thing it's like I'm not even great with pot plants you know it's like <laughs> I managed to keep a cat alive because it will cry for food and stuff like that like what do I do with this baby and it's it's really odd and you just think no matter how prepared you think you are you're just not when it's a little tiny baby there that's completely dependent on you you just think I don't know what I'm doing and it's it's really is a really odd humbling terrifying process <laughs> yeah yeah I always think now when I look back that I used getting prepared as a way to avoid the fact that I was really really worried about it so we had like too much clothes and he had a nursery that he didn't even sleep in for a year you know like so but that was my way of keeping busy and not sitting down to say you know I'm shitting myself I don't know what to do and I'm not even sure if I can do it you know but my way of dealing with that was like I'll build the cot you know (laughs) uh, Um, got loads of um loads of new new and used baby stuff and get loads of yeah we'll have thousands of toys and like yeah a themed nursery ours was like painted the you know christmas before she was born and yeah it was all beautifully themed and it's like yeah Yeah. wasted time that yeah exactly (laughs) yeah they're just Um, like next to you anyway most of the time keeping you awake so I wanted to ask about um, lyrical light, Rachel, as well, because that's how you've kind of combined um, your your passion for you know for mental health and for for songwriting. Right? That's um, let's yeah. let's get into that a little bit. What is what is lyrical light? Um, so lyrical light is a songwriting workshop for um, not particularly for songwriters, just for anyone um, who has been struggling with their mental health um, around having having their children so it's for mums and dads I've met quite a few dads who've who've struggled with postnatal depression um and we just we all get together you can bring your babies the babies will have a little play and we just chat about what's been what's been going on we listen to music and kind of share our experiences um and then we write a set of lyrics from those experiences so it kind of creates a little poem and then I'll set it to music um so they've got there this this song that kind of goes through you know the difficult times and coming out the other side um and uh Jacqueline Gold who very sadly died um very recently of cancer she was the um the creator of um Anne Summers and she uh, ran a thing called um it's wow Wednesdays women in business thing and she gave me an award for lyrical lights and um for for creating this thing that the world hasn't seen before like it's a completely new thing um and she referred perfectly as she does to these songs as um that I created anthems for wellness oh and nice. I, that was like the the best like she was so sweet and kind and thoughtful I'm like so so sad that she died so young um 
but that's just always stayed with me that anthem to wellness so a lot of mums and dads who have um, done these courses with me have the lyrics on their wall because I give them a copy of the lyrics all printed out so they have them and then they can they often say oh yeah I look at that as I go to the front door each day and I think oh yeah I've come through that I'm out the other side now that's the that that beginning bit of the song is like the hard times and I've come through it and it shows them the process they've been through and how amazingly strong they are um and it's just such a lovely place to share because because I've been through it I think if I I would never even occurred to me to talk to people about postnatal depression if I hadn't been there like you, you just can't open up to people but they can say anything to me because they know I'm not going to judge them I'm probably going to go yeah yeah I felt that too it's awful <laughs> like they, there's nothing they can possibly shock me with um so we all kind of share and drink tea and eat cake and play with the babies and um and then yeah create these songs and it's such a a nice kind of positive um creative way to to kind of help come through the other side of it yeah what a beautiful thing to have to have like an actual thing at the end of the process as well to you know to be like, I wrote that or to be able to listen to it as well because music is like you know it's so like attached to how we think and how we feel and to have that you know to have a song that documents your your experience I think that's such a powerful thing right such a powerful powerful thing yeah, I mean, it's, it's such an honour to be able to write that with these amazing people, because a lot of us have songs that we listen to that are like, that's our, you know, people say, oh, this is my running song. This is my, you know, it makes me feel this, this thing. Like I remember going through breakups and listening to Survivor by, uh, by Destiny's Child a lot. I'm a survivor. I'm not and I was like, that is my breakup song. That is what will get me through this time. Um, and so having a song that you even you've even co-written particularly because these people aren't songwriters that it's literally their own experiences in the song um it's so lovely for them to for them to have that and I, I'm honored that I get to get to work on it with them yeah creativity is like it's really important isn't it for looking after well-being you know like finding a, and it doesn't have to we think creativity has to be like a certain set type of things which is like ironically the exact opposite to creativity <laughs> right but finding a way to put some of yourself into something outside of yourself is um that, that's really good for us isn't it we're a creative species and that's stifled yeah. by society i think yes absolutely we're thought of as the kind of weirdos <laughs> in society that go off and do these strange you know creating things but actually yeah we are very creative and it's like you don't even have to be particularly good at it um like i'm I quite like drawing and stuff and I'm not particularly good, but I just, I like it as a creative outlet. Um, and so it doesn't, you know, someone can take up pottery and just really like the feeling of making pottery. And it doesn't mean they have to be, you know, world-class at it. It's just something that is like a, a channel for your creativity. It was great to be able to, to do things like that. I yeah. think. Do your, um, <laughs> do your own experiences kind of like change how you hear music sometimes, right? And I kind of, I'm thinking with that, like, because I, um, as part of prep for this, I listened to your episode of um, Off the Beaten Track with Stu Whiffin. Oh, did a couple of years ago. So yeah. Like, yeah, I love that podcast. Stu's a mate of mine. He's been on here. I've been on a, oh, a couple of his, his podcasts. Um, but in that, you talked about uh, your love of sort of like 90s uh, Seattle grunge. And oh. um, you, you've got a dog named after Chris Cornell, right? I do have a dog called Cornell. I've got a Chris Cornell quote on my foot, an audio slave quote. Um, yeah, the kids listen to a lot of Chris Cornell. <laughs> yeah. So, like, you know, you know, we know Chris's story and it's really, really sad. But having had your own experience when you listen to artists like Chris Cornell, who have also had their experience, does it change the way you change the way you hear it? 
yeah sometimes you can really hear the pain in in someone's voice or when they're going through a particularly I, I'm such a nerd for like books about artists books about lyrics books about what they're like the Dave Grohl book is amazing the new Dave Grohl one is I, I'm just fascinated because he talks about Kurt Cobain's mental struggles um, and this he wrote this book before Taylor Hawkins died and it's actually quite heartbreaking to read because he he talks about his best mate Taylor Hawkins and you're like oh no you know what you know what yeah. happened like, oh no because he talks about how Kurt's death affected him and how he couldn't listen to music for quite a long time he couldn't deal with any of it because it's, it's really hard to lose your your friend like that and so when you listen to early Foo Fighters you can kind of hear the pain in him process trying to process that and trying to fall in love with music again after his friend died and um in such a horrible sad public way um you know everybody knew about it straight away and people were in mourning and and want and and wanted Dave Grohl to say something and do something about it and and like they're 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 struggling as well it's um it's quite fascinating and then watching things like you know I watched the the um I wasn't at the event obviously some of my friends went but the the um the Foo Fighters concert that that was um, in honor of Taylor and listening to Dave Grohl sing um sing times like these it was absolutely so powerful like he can barely get through some of the lines and then the crowd sing with him to like support him and like going through that grief so publicly um it was it was just yeah really emotional listening to listening to artists who was who when you know they were struggling at the time um and you do really connect to them because they're just people and I think the more I've worked in the music industry the kind of deeper in you get to the music industry like the more kind of famous people you know you realize they're all just normal people and they struggle exactly the same with their their mental health they're anxious about things they're worried they're not good enough and they're someone who's like really famous and you'd think oh you must have it all together it's just me who's crying in the corner about (laughs) not being good enough but they're like these megastars and 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 um equally like Ed Sheeran talking about um you know his new album about you know and and things he went through while writing that album it's like I'm really glad he shared that because it shows people must think he has a completely charmed life but but he doesn't and his wife was seriously ill and he lost his close friend um and it was hard and so it's like the more people talk about that the more you can connect to them because they're just a person who goes through the same things and yeah you can hear it in their music and the kind of sadness and and things and things they struggled with um you can often hear um which yeah it does make you listen to music differently I think it really does yeah I think so I I mean I remember when um excuse me um Nirvana are a massive band for me coming up and um I remember when Kurt Cobain died and when I think about that now you can see how um like the music industry and mental health it's such a weird space because when Kurt Cobain died people talked about his drug use and people talked about his fighting with his wife and people talked about like some of the other things he did no one talked about his mental health yeah no one one said like this is like this guy's clearly mentally ill it was more you know let him have his drugs and his guns as long as he's on stage as long as there's another album coming you know it almost seems inevitable when you look back at it now. When you watch the, have you seen, is it Montage of Heck, the documentary? And yeah. there's a lot of um, footage off his camcorder. And you watch it now and I felt queasy. I was like, this, this yeah. guy is not well. He needs help, not a camcorder. Exactly. When you listen to like um, Rape Me, the Nirvana song, when I first heard it, I was just like, 
oh, that's interesting. And I didn't realise until years later that it's about how the music industry was literally raping him. Was like, mm-hmm. in, and I was like, oh, and that's why he's so, <laughs> that, ang- that aggression and anger came out because he was being horribly abused by the industry. They just wanted to get as much, I mean, the industry is still a bit like that, isn't it? They try and get as much out of an artist as they can before they burn out or lose their voice or whatever. They'll just shove them out on stage repeatedly. And I'm watching the Elvis film was awful you know that bit and I don't know if it's if it's true but like Colonel Tom Parker would shove him out on stage just pump him full of drugs and be like doesn't doesn't matter what happens as long as that that kid is on as long as he's on stage and you're like that's not that is not the be all and end all it's it's the making sure the person is well enough to live and like just have a happy life as a normal person like the other stuff is extra surely it's um it's yeah. incredible, isn't it? You know, Elvis, like the first sort of, you know, pop star as it was. And, you know, they treated him like that. And then people are still being treated like it it now, you know. I, you mentioned Dave Grohl's book. I'm going to recommend a book for you now, Rachel. But it's um, it's called Bodies by Ian Winwood. I don't know if you've heard of that one. Um, I had Ian on the podcast a few episodes back. And he, mm-hmm. he's a, he used to write for Kerrang! for like about uh-huh. 20, 20 years. And it's a book about his mental health story, but also mental health in the music industry and you know different uh, bands that he's met and it is um yeah there's some incredible bands in there metallica in there biffy clyro in there frank turner all these amazing people i think you really really enjoy it but um yes yeah. while we're having a book club there's there's yeah. uh, this is my recommendation amazing that's it i love books like that i love scar tissue at the anthony coedis one it's quite old now but i read that at the time and was like whoa well, that's why you're messed up okay <laughs> yeah it all becomes clear yeah, yeah. That makes so much sense that your dad was, you know, yeah, drugs when yeah. you're and you're like, oh, it's yeah, yeah. It, it's um, it's it's kind of fascinating and sad at the same time, isn't it? You're like when you find out those things, you're like, oh, I see why you were like that. You almost had no option than to be like that. Mm. Uh, then going through the process of figuring out why and how you can carry on, like the fact that you know he's Anthony Coates is still alive. It's like the Rolling Stones, isn't it? Like, how are they, you know? <laughs> it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, you know, with uh, Anthony Clydes, he wasn't even the like, the most unwell person in that band. You know? <laughs> like, he wasn't, he, like, I think John Frizzanti probably wins that uh, wins that it, award, you know? It's, uh, yeah, it's messed up, isn't it? it? Yeah, yeah, the stories of them and then having to swap guitarists because one of them was in rehab or somebody, and it's like, whoa, yeah. Flea seems like the most normal one in it, probably. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Films as well, and you're like, oh my gosh, it's crazy, like really dysfunctional world to live in. What's what's interesting now is like, particularly on American TV shows, they have a well-being coach. Okay. Which is um, my friend Deke, um, Deke Sharon. He's the um, musical director for Pitch Perfect movies, and he created like quite a lot of the acapella shows in America. Um, and he says it's really interesting now that they do have those coaches, those people backstage that you can talk to that support people through the horrible process of being voted off on TV. Because it's horrible, isn't it? And it's like, if you think of the X Factor and stuff that got, you know, ridiculed or whatever, and they have to go back to normal life and people have like booed them on stage and, you know, that kind of thing. It's not, it's, things are getting softer in the industry, I think, because they realise they can't really treat people like that. Um, But it's, it's, it's nice that that's starting to come in that kind of mental health side of things of like helping protect people. Um, but, but yeah, so maybe things are changing, but 
I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, amazing. I, I'm, I'm just going to ask you this, Rachel, because I'm unconscious of your your time. I've had you for a long time here. But um, you just with you mentioned the reality stuff, but you've done like judging on Sky and stuff like that. How did you find that that process of having to sort of tell people who are amazing that they just weren't, you know, amazing in that moment? You know, <laughs> it was well, it was a really nice positive show, actually. And so we were we were hired as judges because we actually knew what we were talking about. So they didn't want soundbite judges who were like just famous. Um, so I was on the judging panel with um, one of the swingles um, um, and my friend Aaron, who's in Hamilton, in the cast of Hamilton in London. And, um, and it was just lovely, that really lovely judging panel. And we all got on really well. Um, so there was no kind of nasty character. There was no Simon Cowell kind of thing. Um, so, things that we said were all positive I did get booed at one point because the the warm-up guy had told the crowd that they're allowed to boo us if they don't agree with something whereas that had not been okayed so it was a bit like oh my god I got booed and um it was a group of doctors who were like literally professional like actual doctors who came in in their scrubs and they all sang together and were not the best they had loads of energy um but it was a little bit all over the place and so I had a really nice comment I was like you, like you had loads of fun together but you know the elements of acapella are you know and so that and they didn't quite all come into focus and then boom from the audience I was like wow cool and I thought oh, oh they didn't it was on the show I was like great so I seem like the mean one um but yeah that was because the warm-up guy said it was <laughs> like oh um but it was a really friendly place actually that was a really nice show um, and we've stayed in touch with most of the groups um, that have, have done things. I've written with quite a few of them and they're lovely. They're lovely groups. And they they knew that because we did it on a point system as well. So rather than just going, I don't like you, I like you, which feels very personal. Um, we were marking it out of out of 10 for various things like for pitch, for vocal quality, for interpretation, etc. So. So then the scoring came out um, kind of publicly on the on the big board um, from all the all the judges together. Um, so it wasn't like a personal vendetta or I don't like you or you like, you know, it, it felt much more professional. I much yeah. prefer that. I tend to do when I'm because I don't judge for loads of different things. And I, I like a scoring system like that because it's much fairer. Um, and and they were all really nice. I think some people. One group got a little bit shirty about not winning or something. I can't remember now, but not to me, to a different judge. I was like, okay. Um, but it was it was generally fine. It we had some odd because it was like towards the end of the kind of singing reality TV show thing. I think it, if it if that show had come out like eight years before, it would have been massive. But it came out right at the end of when TV reality singing shows were a bit like you know over. And I just had a baby, sort of three month old. <laughs> so I'm sitting with Sandy Wear on the bottom half. <laughs> I looked great. It was, uh, yeah, glittery stuff on the top and just maternity joggers on the bottom. Yeah. I was like, just don't, I'll never stand up behind the table. Like, I'll just sit there um, and it'll be fine. But it was, yeah, the, the, on the show, it was lovely. But I had, there was someone, I think, was it The Guardian? There was some articles about the show coming out before it would even, before it was even on TV, like some, some, um, reporters got like a little preview thing and they were and they're just some people are just they just want to be negative and so they, there's some people who were really mean about it oh the judges one of the judges says this nah, 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 nah. 
and it, they'd said because I had to we had to these little hero shot things where you talk to the camera about who you are and then the team had said oh we really want you to mention your your masters in songwriting and I was like okay so I mentioned that and this this slightly mean reporter was like oh well maybe I could do the show I've got a GCSE in geography and it's like all right calm down and it's the reason why they wanted me to say that is because people were allowed allowed and did perform original compositions on the show as well so they wanted a professional songwriter who could you know as part of the panel as well who could comment on the aspects of songwriting so it's like a really stupid thing for her to say I just thought, oh, shut up. You know, people just say stupid things. But um, because it's, it's easy to be negative, isn't it? It's easy to be mean, especially when you're talking to the person. If she'd interviewed me, then I don't think she'd have said that to me. <laughs> but um, it's very easy to say that in the press. So that was, you know, that didn't particularly bother me. I just thought, ah, oh, they're just being silly. They just want to say something about it. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, the actual process of being on the show was really nice. Really, really nice. Yeah, that sort of mega, uh, negativity is really, really weird. And like, I do think is it, like we sometimes now fixate with like social media and we say, oh, these like clickbait headlines and all this. People have been doing that since the dawn of time. People have been not very nice. Like it's not a new thing. Like there might be more of it. It might be more accessible because of social media. But, the, you know, there'll always be people who aren't very nice and feel the need to be not very nice. Yeah. But there you go. Yeah. Hopefully that message is, hopefully that message is changing, right? Hopefully people are yeah. trying to be more, be more like kind. My- can't say anything nice don't say anything at all and I always think that when I'm if I'm commenting on something I'm just like if it's something mean I'm just not gonna say it like just don't say it (laughs) like if you think I don't like that song just don't write it just don't write anything about the song just say nothing rather than (laughs) meaning to say that I just don't understand people who have to respond to things with something mean you're like just don't say anything maybe like that's always an option just nothing is an option but um yeah, yeah. And, and evaluate your own behavior sometimes if i see something and it makes me think of mean thought then i say well why am i thinking that how does yeah. that reflect on me what has this triggered in me that i need to resolve in me that's got absolutely nothing to do with this person and their thing and whatever it is that has annoyed me you know quite often it's a, a reflection of self as well right but, um, <laughs> yeah. oh is that just jealousy coming up in me that i'm jealous that they have that thing that i don't or they they're saying that this has happened to them like quite often it is it's just it's people being that's a very human emotion being jealous of what other people have and feeling like they're bragging um but yeah you're you're so right because i'm telling you been to therapy because you figured all these things out like <laughs> Wait, once my... a week for five years yep you've <laughs> <laughs> been saying to me for years my mum's a counsellor as well so she's always like how does that make you feel i'm like oh stop asking me but it's like <laughs> my mum asking it's you know but um but it's so true. It's figuring out what's what has caused that response in you is a really important thing. That's like, yeah, I think if we all did that more, we'd, we'd say less mean things. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mate, we're at the risk of turning this into a, a two-parter if we, uh, <laughs> if we keep carrying on. I'm conscious of your time. But Rachel, I've enjoyed chatting to you immensely today, mate. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been a real pleasure. What have you got? Um, You got anything coming up we need to know about? What's uh, What's going on with you? What's going on? Oh, I've got a musical coming out next month, which features some of my songs about mental health. So some of the wow. kids about women in women in well, women and they're a songwriter circle and they will talk about different things going on with them. And one of them, one of the characters is kind of loosely based on me and she, she had postnatal depression. Um, so that's that's coming out, um, which is quite fun. Um, lots more writing. Lots of that. Yeah. Lots of various things that, yeah, judging and you'll see me popping up doing 
odd things all over the place with my weird hair. (laughs) (laughs) More of the same, mate. More of the same. Yeah. Oh, that's super. All right. Thank you for your time today. I really, really appreciate it. It was lovely to meet you. My pleasure. Big up to the proper mental podcast. A proper mental podcast. <laughs>